We're looking at the book of Habakkuk this month. If you've never heard of Habakkuk, that's okay. It's on page 929 of your Bible in the pew. I looked it up because it is hard to find. It's one of the minor prophets. Minor, not because they're not important, but minor because they're short little books. And uh, so if you want to follow along, you can turn there. But first of all, I've got a question for you. How many of you have ever been in a situation like this? Maybe someone was complaining to you about an unfair situation in their life. Could have been your child, or maybe your spouse, or a coworker. Their complaining was getting on your nerves, and so you said to them something like, well, life isn't fair, get used to it. Anybody ever said that, or thought that, or been told that? <laughs> never, never, right? <laughs> Fairness is a big concern for human beings, right from birth. You know, from the time that we are little toddlers, we can get angry if someone takes our toy or has a bigger piece of the pie than we do, right? And as we get older, we notice more and more things that aren't fair. Sometimes our parents or our teachers aren't fair. Sometimes our bosses aren't fair. Sometimes there's the law that isn't fair. Or there's systems of government and employment and economics and all of these things that we live within that aren't fair. Something's off. There's injustice and inequality all around us, and yet it doesn't seem to work to just tell ourselves to get over it, because life's not fair. We can't get over it. We got this little child in us. Uh, some of you will have watched Charlie Brown Christmas special, and uh, Charlie Brown's little sister Sally says, all I want is my fair share. All I want is what's coming to me. You remember that? That's, we all have that voice in us. We want the world to be fair. And so the book of Habakkuk that we're looking at this month is all about justice and the lack of it in our world. Habakkuk knows God is just and that sin deserves punishment, but evil people are running the world and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And it isn't fair, he says. Habakkuk feels like he's in the dark in more ways than one. He's in the darkness of this evil all around him, and he's in the darkness of not understanding what God is doing in the world. And so last week, Ward introduced us to this book with the story of how he had to learn to navigate in his previous church building in the pitch dark because the power kept going out. Now, wouldn't it have been helpful for him if he had had a guide with him, somebody who knew the building inside and out and could lead him through it without bumping into any walls or ending up in any dead ends? That would have been great. And that's kind of what Habakkuk is asking God for in this book, to be his guide through these dark challenges to his faith and help him navigate around big obstacles in his way, these huge unanswered questions he has that are casting a shadow on everything that he believes about God. So in chapter one, last week, Habakkuk complained to God about all the violence and the evil and the injustice around him. And he asked why he wasn't doing something about it. And God answered him and said, I am doing something about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, this wicked, bloodthirsty army, to come and punish the leaders of the people of Israel who had perverted justice and rebelled against him. Now, as we're reading this ancient kind of difficult book, we may not get how shocking of an answer this was to Habakkuk. This was not what he wanted to hear. He cared about his people. 
The people of Israel, the chosen people of God, he wanted to see repentance and revival and for the people to turn back to God and be following his commands enthusiastically. He wanted to see miracles like God had done in the past. And he's going to say more about that in chapter 3 in his prayer. He doesn't want to see more death and more violence, but God said that's exactly what's coming. So Habakkuk complains again, and he asks, how can you do this? The Babylonians are worse than we are. How can you use these pagan idol worshipers to punish your own people? This still isn't fair. He says, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? We might have that same question sometimes. And so that brings us to chapter 2 which we're looking at today. Habakkuk has made his complaint about the injustice of it all, and now he's waiting in faith that God will answer his questions. So we're going to start uh, reading at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Uh, it's on the screen, and again, it's in your pew Bible on page 930. This is where chapter 2 starts. Um, so Habakkuk is speaking here, and he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So the first part of God's answer is that Habakkuk should be patient. Great. We love that, right? Here's another answer that Habakkuk's really, really pumped about. Wait. <laughs> but the good news is that little phrase, an appointed time. God reassures Habakkuk that he does, in fact, have a plan for what he's doing in the world. He is still in control, and everything is on track to happen at the appointed time. That's reassuring. Things may look chaotic, but God's plan has not been derailed. And then God goes on to agree with Habakkuk that the Babylonians are indeed very wicked and deserve judgment. So in verses 4 and 5, he says this. We'll have it up on screen again, verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave, he gathers, oh, and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And so the rest of the chapter is a series of five woes against this terrible enemy. Now, an oracle of woe is something that was very common in ancient prophetic books like this. Even Jesus used this form of prophecy when he pronounced seven woes against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You can read that later. The purpose of the woe oracle is to warn people that what they're doing is going to lead to their own demise if they don't change their ways. And it's also an encouragement to the victims that God has seen the injustice that's been done and he is planning to judge their oppressors. So in this case, the words of woe that Habakkuk receives are written as if they're spoken by the nations that have been conquered against their Babylonian conquerors. And so even though each of the five woes is different, 
They're all essentially saying the same thing, that evil people are going to reap what they sow and that whatever they have done to others is going to come back to bite them. So let's read verses 6 to 20, all five of these woes. Will not all of them, that is the nations, taunt him, the enemy, with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So there's those five woes. And did you notice all the ways that it describes the evil oppressor getting exactly what he deserves? The plunderer is plundered. The builder's building becomes a witness against him. The one who exposes others is itself exposed. The one who shames becomes shamed. And those who worship silent idols are at last silenced before Yahweh, God Almighty. There's a lot of terrible sins described in these verses. And it would be nice if each of the five woes addressed one thing specifically, but every Bible commentary I looked at had had a different sin as the main one for each of these woes. The only thing they all agreed on was that the fifth one's about idolatry. Before that, there's a whole bunch of sins mixed together. We've got pride, selfishness, theft, murder, extortion, scheming, drunkenness, lust, and even environmental destruction. It's a big mess. But then it gets to the worst one of all, and maybe the source of all of the others, idolatry worshiping what our own hands have made instead of God, our creator. On the surface, it seems like this chapter is just a rant against evil. And it doesn't answer Habakkuk's question of why God allows all this to go on. 
God doesn't usually answer why questions directly. If you just read the book of Job, you'll see that. Job, Job has this terrible situation that causes him to wonder why God allows so much suffering in the world, and in particular, why good people suffer and evil people seem to be fine. But God doesn't really answer that question. He answers with a different answer. And he does the same thing here. He doesn't really answer Habakkuk's question about why he tolerates evil for so long, but he gives the answer to a different question, a more practical question. What are you going to do about it? That's what God answers. The answer is that evil will not be allowed to win. No one is ultimately going to get away with anything. Everyone will get what they deserve. Justice will prevail. Now, Pastor Rick Warren summarizes it like this. Life is not fair, but one day God's going to settle the score. He's going to right the wrongs. So who can get better justice, you or God? This is why in Romans 12, Scripture tells us, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, often descriptions of God's judgment like this make us nervous and uncomfortable, and rightly so. Because if any of those sins that are listed in those five woes apply to us, we should be nervous. We should immediately repent and confess our sins to God and ask him for forgiveness. He is merciful to those who sincerely confess. But this section of Habakkuk is, is actually intended to be encouraging. It's not to scare us into confessing. That's not the purpose of it. Habakkuk would have been encouraged by reading this to know that God was not ignoring the sins of the Babylonians and that justice was on the way. He might not see it in his lifetime, but if God said it was coming, he could patiently trust God in faith. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Have you heard that before? The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I think that's the perfect summary of this main point in Habakkuk 2, that we will have to wait in faith but slowly and surely, God is moving things toward justice. We fret over evil because we can only see the smallest little slice of history in our lifetimes. Certain individuals seem to get away with their crimes, and certain oppressive systems remain in place for decades or even centuries. But God is working on this cosmic scale with all of eternity to set things right. We're in a hurry to see justice done right here, right now, for this or that individual or this or that particular situation. But God is working towards this long-term universal justice. At the final judgment, cities and even nations will be called to account, not just individuals. Jesus taught about this in Matthew 11. He prophesied against the towns that would not accept his teaching, and he said it would be worse for Tyre and Sidon on the Day of Judgment than for them. Now, Tyre and Sidon were two of the most notoriously wicked cities in the Old Testament, and both the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel testified against them. But Jesus said the cities that rejected him and his message would be judged even more harshly than they would. So how can... I don't understand this. How can thousands of, or millions of people, like the population of a city or of an empire, like Babylon here in Habakkuk, how can that group be judged as one 
fairly? I, I really don't know, but I trust that God knows. And these five woes in Habakkuk are supposed to encourage us that God is the perfect judge and he will not tolerate evil forever. Someday his perfect kingdom is going to come in all of its fullness, and then every evil action will be paid for. There's three verses in particular in this chapter that are especially encouraging. And even if you never heard the name of Habakkuk before today or last week when we started our series, you might have heard these phrases because they're quoted elsewhere in the Bible. And they leave us with three happy thoughts about God's coming kingdom. And that is where I want to lead us to today. They're almost like interruptions in this long diatribe about sin and judgment and evil. They're little hopeful lights that are shining in the dark. And so the first happy thought is in the second half of chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of the most famous phrases in the Bible. The righteous will live by faith. Or in some translations it says, by his faithfulness. It's quoted in three places in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and in Galatians 3.11, this verse is used to explain salvation by faith and not by works. Romans says this, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Where was it written? In Habakkuk. And then in Galatians 3.11, it says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. So this, this little phrase was, was formative during the Reformation period, that people realized it is only by faith in God that we are saved, not by what, our works and by our good deeds. We can't earn our way to heaven. It has to be by faith. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the same phrase is quoted again, but it's used in a bit of a different way as an encouragement to Christians to persevere in times of hardship and persecution. The church was going through a really difficult time, and this was used to encourage them to keep living by faith, even when their faith was tested. And so in light of these three uh, quotations of Habakkuk, there's one Bible scholar who said this. The prophet's statement, the just shall live by faith, now just be aware, some English translations might say the just instead of the righteous, and that's okay, it shows us how closely justice and righteousness are connected, but the prophet's statement, the just shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. The emphasis in Romans is on the just, in Galatians on how they should live, and in Hebrews on by faith. It takes three books to explain and apply this one verse. If you ever think you're done learning about the Bible, you're not. <laughs> there is so much depth to it and so much to unpack in every phrase. But the reason this is a happy thought is because God's, if God's requirement for us is simply that we live by faith, then he is an incredibly gracious God. None of us are perfect. We all fall short. We all sin, we don't meet God's standards, and yet if we have faith, God calls us righteous. That's amazing. And so as people of faith, we don't have to live in fear of God's judgment. There's no oracles of woe for us. Instead, we get a promise. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's Romans 8, verse 1. So salvation by faith alone is great news, and this truth was stated first in Habakkuk, of all places. So the second happy thought in this chapter is verse 14, and it says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So things are not always going to be the way they are now, with evil and corruption everywhere we turn. The glory of God is going to cover this earth someday. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, uses this same phrase in his prophecy about the future reign of God on earth. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There it is, that same phrase. So according to Isaiah, even the animal kingdom will be at peace someday, not to mention the human nations. There will be harmony and kindness because every living creature will be surrounded by God's glory. In the message version of the Bible, it says it like this, the whole earth will be brimming with knowing God alive, a living knowledge of God, ocean deep, ocean wide. Isn't that beautiful? God's kingdom will come. And it has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has been given all authority and power. And at the appointed time, he will return. And when he does, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Now the third happy thought is Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Isn't it a relief that we aren't the ones in charge? God is in charge. He is in his temple, on his throne, and he is not anxious about a thing. He may be saddened by a lot of things, but everything is on track and is on schedule according to his plan. We may look around and see crisis after crisis with evil people prospering and innocent people suffering, and we don't know what to do, but God is not surprised, and he knows exactly what to do. He's got a plan that is already in motion. In Psalm 11, King David wrote a similar phrase with a similar purpose to reassure us that God has everything under control and the wicked are not going to get away with anything. Psalm 11, verses 4 to 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. So three happy thoughts. We can sum them up in just three words. Grace, glory, and government. God is gracious. All that he requires is that we live by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is our righteousness, faith. 
Secondly, he's glorious, and his infinite glory is going to expand and fill the earth and consume every evil thing. And lastly, he's the one in control. Every government on earth will ultimately answer to the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the government of the universe. Empires will come and go, but God is on his holy throne, and he has no challengers. So next week, we're going to see how Habakkuk responds to these truths. But for this week, here is your task, your homework. It's not too hard. When you read the news and you feel like the world is a terrible dark place, or you're dealing with some personal situation that just doesn't make sense, it's painful, it's, you feel like you're in the dark, I want you to say to yourself, God sees everything and justice is coming. Can you say it with me? God sees everything and justice is coming. That is what Habakkuk is encouraging us with today. And so let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this hopeful word that you are just and justice will prevail. Sometimes that's a scary thought for us, Lord, because we know that if you were to repay us for our wrongs, we would be in trouble. But your grace is there as well. That if we live by faith in you, if we trust and obey, then we are righteous and we are not condemned. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust that even though the world looks like a mess, it is a mess, you are untangling it one strand at a time. And it may take a while. Help us to be patient, Lord. Help us to have eyes of faith that see through the darkness of this world to the light of Jesus Christ, who is coming again to set all things right. Thank you, Lord, that you are in charge. And we don't have to fix it. We can't fix it. All we can do is pray and ask you to fix it. Thank you for this promise that you will do exactly that. We love you, Lord, and we bless your name. Amen.